Certain information set forth in this podcast may contain forward-looking information under applicable securities laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. Solberry Trout and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in this podcast if circumstances or management's estimates or opinions should change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell securities and does not constitute an investment advice. My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific advisor to Solberry Trout, and this is the latest edition of Name Tag, a podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Godfrey. He's the CEO of Bergen Bio. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. Pleasure to speak with you today. First things first, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Bergen Bio, let's start with the elevator pitch. Richard, 60 seconds or less, where is Bergen Bio headquartered? How long have you been there? And what do you guys do there? Thank you, Neil. Bergen Bio is a clinical stage oncology biotech company. We're headquartered in Bergen and Norway, although the vast majority of our organization is in Oxford in the UK. We're developing first-in-class inhibitors of axle tyrosine kinase. Our lead program is currently in multiple phase two programs. Got it, that was perfect, nice and short. Now, before we proceed, uh, I need to set the stage a bit for our listeners uh, in that Richard and I have actually spoken before. Uh, this was last May. Uh, that interview was more focused on Richard's personal journey to the CEO chair, uh, whereas this chat will focus just a bit more on Bergen Bio's uh, clinical progress since last May, uh, as well as current events, and that means SIPC data as well as COVID. Uh, if listeners would like to hear the initial interview, uh, that is posted on SoundCloud under the heading of Solberry Trout Talks. That said, I still would like to highlight a few things about your background, Richard, and I'm just going to run through a bit here. You earned a master's degree in pharmaceutical chemistry in the late 80s. Uh, shortly thereafter, you entered industry and you worked for five years at a company called Catalent. Uh, this was first as a research, science, research scientist and then as a production manager, and that went on until 1992. Thereafter, you left the bench and you worked in a number of positions that were strictly business oriented. So my first general question is, uh, why leave the bench? Well, it was more of an evolution in actual fact, Neil. So um, I, was, I was working on a multitude of, of, of different projects. It was a contract development company developing new formulations and new delivery systems for, for both established medicines and, uh, and, and new chemical entities. And my career really followed the development of one or two drug candidates that we were developing at the time. So I moved from early sort of, uh, formulation work and uh, feasibility work through, through scale-up, through, through, through manufacturing, through clinical mm -hmm. trial supply, um, and, and, and then later, as you said, then, then toggled into more commercial roles. I think working in a contract development house, contract manufacturing house, you get very broad experience, uh, lots of different, different drugs, different, different indications, but also different ways of working. Sometimes you're, you're quite external to the, to the project team, and sometimes quite internal to the project teams. And I clearly enjoyed being internal and being involved in, in the full sphere of drug development. And, and that experience stood me in good stead. Okay. So um, 
the listeners, rather than walk you through the various stepping stone companies and ventures that uh, led Richard to the CEO's chair, I'm just going to run through a roughly chronological list, and then I'm going to follow up with an overall question related to that journey. So first, we had a company called RB Consumer Goods, which sells everything from condoms to Lysol. Then DCC, Health and Beauty Solutions. And then moving more toward the pharmaceutical realm, we have a company called the Innova Group. And then a, a pivot to venture capital at Sarcia uh, Management. And then Allende Pharmaceuticals. And finally, Balter Medical. Now, many of these experiences were in leadership roles, some not. So, but this occurred over the roughly 16 years. And some of these positions ran concurrently both before and even during your tenure at Bergen Bio. So summarizing all of that, one assumes you've had many successes and anyone can learn from a success. But now I want you to tell me something about something that blew up, something that demanded an attitude adjustment or a solution that they do not teach in business school. And yes, I forgot to mention you do have an MBA. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, Neil. I guess, you know, thankfully there haven't been too many blow ups in my, in my career. Um, which is uh, which is uh, always nice to report, but I guess there's been a couple a couple of um, instances where, as you say, I've needed to to change my perspective, adjust my optics to understand something that maybe I'd, I'd misinterpreted or not quite got right, or or indeed uh, was it wasn't clear at the beginning. So you, you mentioned DCC, that stands for Development Capital Corporation, and it's a, it's a it's it's effectively a private equity, publicly traded private equity firm, and that gave me my real sort of insight into um, sort of uh, funding, uh, buy and build strategies, uh, inv equity investment, uh, buyouts and, 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 and such like. And um, whilst, whilst my journey with DCC was actually uh, very successful um, uh, on a buy and build strategy, acquiring different companies and building up quite, quite, a, quite, a, quite, a, quite a strong group of companies in, in the UK with a presence across Europe, um, I then I then toggled into um, in, into uh, into a Swiss privately held company that um, uh, that was doing contract development, contract research, contract manufacturing, and then we did a private equity exit um, during during my tenure there. So technically speaking, it was a management buyout. It was a half billion Swiss franc management buyout, and I was part of the three person team doing that. Um, and you know, that was very exciting, uh, working towards the closure. And eventually getting the deal away, and so I don't know that it was was a, a was a blow up, but certainly then a substantial uh, change in perspective from being a privately held company where uh, where where so finances were really secondary to technology, customer service, innovation, and um, uh, image, to 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 working for a, a very very uh, financially orientated private equity firm where where working capital, banking covenants. Um, uh, were, 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 were the key drivers. And whilst it's often spoken about, and you said not taught, not taught at a business school, well, clearly they're taught at business school, but when you actually need to operate within those constraints, it's, it's, it's somewhat different. And that, you know, I spent a couple of years adjusting to that, that new way of thinking, uh, as opposed to sort of running the business for the success of the business, uh, to actually running it from quarter to quarter so that you actually met your covenants and, and you were, were financially successful. Um, and I guess, you know, so what they don't teach you at business school, I guess, is that, you know, the two are not always synonymous. 
financial mm. success, meeting covenants, uh, growing the profits, doesn't necessarily mean that the company is as successful as it was before in terms of developing the best products or giving the best service, uh, or indeed developing the organization in the optimal way or pursuing strategies that, 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 are, that are best. Uh, it tends to lead to somewhat of a short-term uh, perspective, but nonetheless, you know, if, if you do it well, you have to sort of navigate that sort of straight and narrow between financial results and, and what's the best for the long-term um, perspective of the company. So it wasn't a blow up, but it was, for me, it felt like a blow up because all of a sudden, we weren't necessarily doing the right thing all the time. What we were doing is um, is, is is the appropriate thing to meet all the all the stakeholder demands, which of course is business school speak for, for compromise, I guess. All right, good. Uh, now we're going to dovetail the personal with the business side. Uh, Bergen Bio, you've had a lot of various positions with various companies. What attracted you to this opportunity? You know, Bergen Bio for me has been really sort of a, a climax and a fulcrum of sort of all the different business experiences that I've had. It was the opportunity really to, to, to spin a brand new company out of the university based on some very, very uh, groundbreaking uh, research. Really asking the question, you know, why is it that when we treat cancer, invariably it comes back? And when it comes back, it's resistant to drugs, it can no longer be treated. Um, and, and asking those questions led us to a, uh, to, 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 to a protein called Axel, and we've been unraveling the biology of Axel for, for 12 years now, uh, increasingly understanding the role and function of Axel and how it's essential for mediating the survival of cancer cells. And the biology is facilitated by, by, by things like the COVID virus in order to enter the cells. So it's unraveling a biology that otherwise has not been understood and then being able to inhibit that, 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 that biology, which has really been hijacked by disease and, and, make, and makes disease very difficult to treat. So that's the, that's the bit that really attracted me and, and has kept me totally engaged for, for more than a decade now, is the fact that we're, we really are revealing something that's very, very important in, in how disease is, 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 is functioning and, and why we need to think about treating diseases differently, not just about treating symptoms, not just about killing cancer cells, but actually you know, stopping the cancers from surviving, which I think is so important. Or indeed, in the case of COVID, we'll talk about that in a minute, I think, you know, stopping the virus from, from actually gaining, gaining access to the cells and stop it from surviving once it's in the body. Very, very important paradigm shift, stopping survival as opposed to, to killing the disease. Um, mindful that this is not a science-based interview, could you give me just a bit more of the mechanism of the pathway as it relates to, to oncology? Yeah, definitely, yes. Yeah. So the first thing that we discovered uh, by, by supporting PhD students actually is that Axel is the essential mediator of a biological process known as epithelial to mesenchymal transition. Now epithelial cells, as we all know from, from school, looking at um, at the cells of um, um, uh, onions, maybe under the microscope, they're all blocks like bricks that we can see all laid next to each other, nice and orderly. That's the epithelial cells. And in the case of a cancer, or indeed in the case of fibrosis or, or scleroderma or COPD, um, when that epithelial cells, when this tumor becomes stressed, whether it's stressed by, uh, by, by inflammation, whether it's stressed by a lack of oxygen, whether it's stressed because it's in a constrained environment or under inflammation or, 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 or immune attack, you know, many of the cells will start to die. They're stone signals of, of stress. That stress leads to an increase in the expression of axle. 
Now, axle mediates its effect by being upregulated. It's not a driving mutation, it's upregulated. And what we see is we get an increased expression or increased number of axle proteins expressed on the surface of these cancer cells. What that does is sends a cascade through the, through the cytoplasm into the nucleus and about 600 different genes are activated. And these epithelial cells are able to break away from each other and they become mesenchymal. They, they're, they're sort of lone soldiers. They look like stars, they become stellite in appearance. And you often see them on the front of Nature magazine and such like these angry, normally depicted in red cancer cells look like octopuses, tentacles. They're mesenchymal cells and they need the actual signal to stay mesenchymal. They're the dangerous cells. You know, they change their cell wall, they, they, they downregulate their metabolism, they become stem-like in their, in their survival pattern. They can also move, they can move away from whatever is making the environment hostile. So they can move away from chemotoxic environments, they can move away from hypoxic environments, they can enter the blood system, spread around the body, they can exit the blood system, and they can seed secondary or metastatic tumors. Indeed, there's been quite a lot of research now that shows that the only genomic difference between a primary tumor and a metastatic tumor is the axial expression. And these metastatic tumors are addicted or they need the actual signal to survive there. Again, they're surviving in an alien environment. So that's the basic biology that, that underpinned the work that, we, that we've done ever since. And I say these mesenchymal cells are, are, are resistant to drugs. So by inhibiting axial, what you actually do is you take these mesenchymal cells and you revert them back to being epithelial. And when they're epithelial, they're sensitive to a, to a toxic microenvironment, whether it's chemo agents or hypoxia. More recently, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, more recently, our research has continued that we understand that axles also present on cells of the innate immune system, particularly the cells that infiltrate into the tumor macrophages, dendritic cells, NK cells. And when they're there and they're upregulated, they suppress the role of those cells in immune response. So they actually, not only do the cancer cells able to escape, but they're also able to switch off any immune cells that may be getting close to them. And the really neat thing is with the case of the dendritic cells, they're able to stop the dendritic cells from priming the T cells to target the cancer cells. And it just oh, okay. gets more and more and more uh, detailed and more and more rich in how cancer is able to evade and avoid the immune system and, and tolerate you know, chemo agents, for example, that otherwise would kill them. All right, so the prominence of this target actually leads me into my next question. You have a lead candidate. This is called bemcitinib. It's currently in multiple clinical trials for multiple indications. Most of these are phase two trials. Uh, some of the indications include non-small cell lung, uh, triple negative breast, AML. Now, before we discuss any of the data related to those programs, uh, I need to ask you about the competitive landscape. As you pointed out, this is a very attractive target. And so the competitor landscape is not exactly empty. Mm. How do you differentiate your asset? Okay. Well, kinases, you know, there's about 450 kinases in the genome. And we, we've known that they're important for modulating many biological processes. And some of them are implicated in, in the hallmarks of cancer. Um, so there's the old, the old class of kinase inhibitors were not very specific. They would, they would hit multiple kinases and you get multiple effects as a result of that sort of polypharmacy. And so some of them would be uh, advantageous and it would stop the tumor from growing or stop it from reproducing. And some of them will be quite detrimental and you have all sorts of serious side effects. And it's always a balance. And these, these multi-kinase inhibitors, 
we should really regard as more like chemo agents. Uh, some of them, of course, have, have actual activity. Um, and we don't really see them as a serious uh, competitor. Um, sometimes the marketing departments um, will, will take a halo effect from, from Axel because the biology is sexy and say this is the mode of action. But to be honest, we don't really know what's, what, what's the mode of action of those multi-kinase inhibitors. Um, more recent, uh, more re no, the other thing, of course, is that Axel is, is quite, in, in terms of its evolutionary state, it's quite late being laid down in, in, in the development of, um, of, of, of organisms. And it's quite a sophisticated protein. And it's quite difficult to, to, to develop selective inhibitors of, of, of Axel, whether it's small molecule inhibitors against the kinase domain or antibodies against the extracellular domain. It seems to be quite difficult to both develop it and also gain some IP space. So we've, we've, had, we've had a lead position for quite a while and continue to do so um, in, in having a selective inhibitor. And of course, the advantage of having a select inhibitor is that it only inhibits Axel and therefore it's extremely well tolerated because Axel doesn't really have any role and function in normal physiology. So by inhibiting it, you don't have any on-target effects, uh, side effects, and being, being, and, and being selected, we don't have any off-target side effects. So that's a real advantage. Um, more recently, there have been a few companies that are, that are attempting to develop selective inhibitors against Axel, and we are seeing a few entering the field. And um, so I think, I think in actual fact, it gives a lot of validation to, to the work that we've been doing, the fact that other companies are seeing the real potential, they're validating the target and also the, the, the potential therapeutic and clinical benefit. Okay, um, now, um, especially lately with the immunotherapy, uh, the enriching patient selection through biomarkers has become sort of critical. Yeah. Uh, with the kinases, obviously there are some very well-known tests that you have to go through or they're not gonna give you the drug. Um, are you selecting patients uh, by molecular targeting or, or how, that, how is that going on? Well, we're not at the moment, but we are collecting data and, and, and biomarker data uh, to, to, with, that, with that intention uh, and, and that ambition. What we see very clearly in, in solid tumors is being able to measure the actual expression on the cancer cell and the immune cell that's present in the tumor and being able to, to, to compute that is a very pre good predictive way of identifying patients that will benefit from an axle inhibitor. In other words, if we can stop axle on the cancer cells and or stop axle on the immune cells, we can stop the EMT and we can stop the immune suppression and we have a good chance of being able to treat the patient. And we present all of our solid tumor data in relation to their axle status. In the liquid tumors, we're actually able to utilize a, um, a blood-based uh, biomarker, which is a, a, a derivative of Axel. And we've also seen very good correlation there that Axel does predict for response. When we're combining with, um, with other drugs, it may or may not be necessary to enrich. It may be the natural fact that we're seeing that we're actually having a, a ubiquitous effect across the full range of patients that are Axel positive and Axel negative. So that remains to be seen. So at the moment, we're taking all comer patients. We're collecting this, this biomarker data. We've developed companion diagnostic assays. We're reporting our data um, in, in, the, in, the, um, in, in the vogue of actual positive, actual negative. And we're discussing with regulators whether or not we can and should be selecting patients prospectively in the future. Okay. So now, you, uh, as I mentioned, you have multiple trials underway. Uh, some in combination, I believe some in monotherapy as well. Um, there's one I want to focus on for both uh, 
personal and professional reasons, which is non-small cell. You uh, had a presentation at CITSI just a couple of weeks ago. Could you give me the top line data there? Yeah, definitely. So treating non-small cell lung cancer patients in the second line, patients okay. that have failed um, checkpoint inhibitor therapy and or chemotherapy. These patients have a very, very poor prognosis, median over survival much less than 12 months. Um, and, and all that's really available for them is quite aggressive, old-fashioned chemo agents that, that, are, that are really dreadful and sort of single-digit uh, response rates and very little benefit to overall survival. So unfortunately, uh, patients that have failed first-line lung cancer are, are, are a you know, dreadful, dreadful outlook for those patients. And that's the space that we're working in. Our ambition is to have a chemo-free second-line treatment option for these patients. And what we'd really like to do is stop the immune suppression. The reason why the cancer continues to, to progress is that the immune system is not able to engage with it and clear it. We have to use the immune system to clear cancer. In fact, I think most people are now of the opinion that, that the chemo is really just a, just a primer for the immune system. Yeah. So you take the chemo agents, it busts open the cells, it creates all sorts of antigens, you prime the immune system and it comes in and it clears the tumor. It's not the, it's not the chemo that, that cures the cancer, it's the immune system that cures it. And, and clears it and maintains it in a stasis, which is really important. In fact, increasingly we're seeing the non-progressive disease is really what cancer patients want. They want to turn cancer into a chronic condition that they can live with until, until, until the end of their days. You know, a little bit like HIV, you manage, you manage it through to, through, through to termination. You don't, you don't just, you know, you, 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 it, 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 that's the way that we have to go, turn it into a chronic condition that's being managed maybe by its molecular signature. So you asked about the headline data. Well, the headline data that we presented at CITSI, which is a very, very scientific immune oncology Congress, is the fact that we showed very clearly that the patients that benefit from bemcentinib and checkpoint inhibitor in second line have a very, very specific gene signature. That gene signature is clearly for Axel. It's clearly for EMT. But more importantly, what we've been able to show is there's a species of macrophage and a species of dendritic cells, both of which express axle, but actually known and, and quite, quite, quite recently been shown to be immune suppressive. So they're called the TREM2 macrophages and the CCR7 dendritic cells, published in Nature just a few months ago in actual fact. And what we can see is they're the, they are the cells that switch off the immune system, stop it from working. And they do that by exhausting the T cells. They stop the T cells from working, which is the warhead of the immune system. They need the actual signal to survive. If we inhibit axon, those TREM2 macrophages and um, uh, CCR7 dendritic cells don't exist. And we actually find that the T cells are re-energized and, and can then start to clear the tumor. So that was the takeaway message from CITSI. It was a mechanistic finding based on deep sequencing of, of tumors that patients that respond to our drug with 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 um, with in the second line lung cancer. Excellent. I, I mean, I've been I've been reporting on drugs for too long, maybe, and when someone actually understands what their drug is doing, it's very refreshing. <laughs> it's complicated um, science. Uh, credit to all those brilliant scientists who unraveled all the deep sequencing data and, and really join up all the dots because a lot of research these days is joining up the dots. We can't do it all ourselves. You join up the dots and you really understand what others are doing and put it all into context. I'm gonna to get to the dot connecting in just a minute, but I have a couple more questions. 
and, and this is, uh, it couldn't be any more of a current event. It's not only of global, but local concern. I live here in New York, which is a COVID epicenter. And it turns out then Sentinib has some activity in the setting. Now you sort of touched on how that could possibly happen. Sure. Uh, and a few days ago, you made a fairly significant announcement related to this uh, activity. So first, mm -hmm. just a couple words on why would axons impact infectious disease? Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for the opportunity to explain that. So again, it's, 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 the, it's the marvels of biology and how, you know, for better or for worse, biology can be harnessed, in this case, harnessed again for disease, to mediate disease. Um, we've known for a long time that Axel's got an important role to play in viral infections. Ebola, Zika, dengue fever, all use Axel as a viral port of entry. Uh, of course, the COVID um, uh, virus, the SARS-CoV-2, is also an envelope virus. Um, Working with uh, collaborators, particularly collaborators at the University of Iowa, Professor Wendy Murray, she's really unraveled what's going on here. So we, we hear a lot about the spike protein on the virus, and we hear a lot about ACE2 on the host cell as the receptor. What we know from her initial work was that Axel acts as a co-receptor, and you get 80% increase in infection when Axel's present, uh, uh, as well as the ACE2. What is also unraveled now is in particular, it's also when the, um, when, when the host cell, it figures that you've got a foreign particle on the surface of the cell and it engulfs it, it eats me. It's like a phagocytosis or it forms an endosome and consumes this as a way of cleaning up the outside of the cell. Inadvertently, it brings the virus into the cell and then the virus takes over and, and, and does its dirty business. Now the virus is really clever how clever these viruses. It coats itself in a chemical, phosphatidylserine, which then binds to the ligand, which then attaches to, to axon. And then it sits there on the outside of the cell, and then it triggers the, the host cell, you know, which is typically, again, the lining of our, of, our, of, our, of, our, of our waste. It then says, oh, there's a particle on the outside of the cell I need to clean up. And it comes along and it eats this particle, brings it into the cell where it's going to basically dispose of it in the way in which it normally you know, maintain sort of hygiene around the extracellular area. Instead, the virus jumps out and takes over the cell starts reproducing. Mm. But again, this is where Axel is so, 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 so sinister. The Axel, when it's activated on the cell surface, forms a complex with the interferon receptor, which is there as well, typically getting, getting messages and signals from all sorts of cytokines in the extracellular space. So it forms a complex with this interferon receptor that in turn, leads to a cascade and then release, release of, of, um, of, um, of dampening the release of type one interferon. Type one interferon is the number one immune response that our bodies have against viral infection. So we have duality effect mediated by Axel. You, you, it facilitates a viral uptake and it facilitates switching off of the type one interferon response. And by inhibiting Axel, you get a massive increase in the type one interferon response, which is good news because then that dampens the viral effect. So she's done an awful lot of work uh, demonstrating this in a whole host of preclinical models, unraveled the, uh, the mechanism and really supports taking, taking our cancer drug into, into, um, into, into COVID trials. And we currently have, have two trials in three major centers around the world. So in total, 240 patients will be enrolled in this randomized study. It's for hospitalized patients, and we're testing the drug more than a dozen sites across the UK, five sites in South Africa, and seven sites in India. 
so you know, you know, regressively, you know, we're seeing a second wave of infection in the UK. You know, South Africa seems to be um, sort of controlling the infection a little bit, and India it's still it's still quite a rampant disease. Indeed, we, we're, 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 some of the hospitals in India that are um, that are um, involved in our study are seeing hundreds of patients a week and admitting hundreds of patients a week into their into their into their hospital. So our objective is to see if we can. Um, treat patients quickly, you know, they're only going to get a 15-day course of bemcentinib. The endpoint is really to see that we can see a two-point improvement in their, in their, in their COVID score uh, or early release, as well as stopping things like, you know, reducing the number of oxygen-free days. Um, uh, and then there's a whole host of uh, translational um, markers looking at uh, viral load, cytokine profiling, etc. So very, very optimistic. Of course, nothing is as easy and straightforward as just taking a one-a-day bemcentinib pill. Uh, I know you, this, this work just got underway recently. Uh, when do you expect to read out? Well, we, regrettably, we, we're probably going to recruit quite quickly in some of these regions around the world. The clinical endpoints will be quite quick to read out. You know, patients, thankfully, most patients recover. So I would say that we should have some readouts uh, early next year, first quarter next year. The translational readouts will take a bit longer. Um, you know, there's, there's many thousands, more than 100,000 different data points that will come in from these trials uh, that are going to need processing. So the translational data points will take a bit longer, but the clinical readouts should, should come in relatively quickly. Indeed, we have some ambitions and some, some contingencies there. Okay, uh, now I mentioned, the, or you mentioned dots, connecting dots. Uh, and this is very much uh, relevant to the COVID issue. Uh, I no longer get to connect dots because I don't go to conferences anymore. I can't see anybody. I, you can't network on a Zoom call. I don't care what you say. Uh, how has COVID affected your your uh, your business? Mm, mm. No, that's a great question and really really important. Um, it, it, we we have to, we have to accept that the COVID pandemic globally has had a impact on recruitment in the clinical trials. Um, you know, many, many parts of the world, uh, many hospitals around the world stopped recruiting patients in the clinical trials. We, you know, we've been conducting our trials in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, in the UK uh, and North America. And in many of those centers, you know, particularly in the first half of this year, they, 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 stopped, they stopped recruiting you know, patients into the study. So certainly it had an impact. And of course that was the right thing to do. And of course, patients were very, very reluctant to go into hospitals and mingle with lots of people. So all of these things were taken for the right reasons. So it has, it has, has, it has had an adverse impact on, 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 on recruitment into our, in, into our clinical trials. But I guess there's other aspects that we should consider in terms of impact on the business. Um, you know, lots of people have now retreated, they're working from home. That means as, as a leader, we need to think about our leadership style you know, all communications just through a virtual media, through the Zoom, through video conferencing, through telephone, through um, instant messaging. Um, and we need to think quite carefully about how the messages are transmitted, how they're going to be received, uh, making sure that we don't have information overload, that it's timely, uh, etc. I think we also need to be very, very conscious about you know, the impact this has on, on people's mental health, you know, where they're working, what facilities they have at home, you know, um, what space they have, whether they're spending, you know, even more hours sat at a desk in front of a monitor than they would be there in the office, getting very, very little social relief, 
from from colleagues, not talking about sport or TV or or, 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 or movies and things like this. So I think as the leader, we need to be much more alert to, to the to the total to the total well-being of, of, our, of our staff, not just the office environment, but also the home environment and making sure that they, they take enough time out. And you know, for the managers as well, making sure that they plan their time, that they give themselves enough, enough headspace for thinking, for planning, for organizing, and then they're sort of constantly going from meeting to meeting for call to call. They are stopping to get coffee. They are stopping to, to make notes, to plan, to think. I think, I think it's the thinking the whole, for managers that have um, thought about this and leaders that have thought about this, it's possibly gonna make us better leaders, better managers in the future. Um, and for those that haven't, I think the organisations are going to suffer, and 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 you know people people will will re reconsider their their career choices. I think so. It has had a big impact for sure. Thank you for that. Uh, to wrap up, we just have two very cut and dried business questions. The first is, uh, tell me about the IP for your lead asset. Yes, Ben Sentinel been been been, been this around for a little while. Composition of matter will expire 2028, so that's not very far into the future. We think with uh, clinical trial use and extended use, we're, we're modeling out to 2033, so there's still sufficient time to recover the R&D costs for sure. And there's, there's, there's a lot of use patterns that pushes right out into the mid-30s, uh, as, as well as formulation work. So yeah, we, we're very conscious about the, 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 the IP landscape, but I think we, we've managed that well. And of course, our second acid, our anti-axial antibody, you know, has still got whatever it is, you know, 17 years of, of, of composition matter and patent life left. So that, that's, that's in very good shape. Um, yeah, I think that's your question. Yeah, and then uh, finally, the bottom line, money. Yeah, uh, yeah. This, this podcast is being done in preparation for conversations to be had during virtual JP Morgan. Uh, so real quick, uh, what's your current runway and what sort of conversations would you like to have during shaping market? Well, we benefited from being able to raise substantial capital during 2020. We closed quarter three with over $80 million on our account. That gives us um, several years of runway by current burn rate. Of course, the stage that we're at now, we're looking to substantially ramp up our clinical development in various indications. Um, so so our, our burn rate will increase substantially as well. Uh, so that means that our ambitions at JP Morgan are probably a twofold. One is, of course, we'd really like to, 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 to work with um, specialist investors who, who, um, who, who want to be part of this exciting journey, developing axial inhibitors for a whole raft of different, different diseases, um, and also industry partners, people who'd like to be part of this journey as well, whether on a, on a global uh, or, or regional basis, or indeed on an indication basis. We, we have lots of opportunities where we could work with different, different parties. Splendid. That's it. We have, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've been speaking with Richard Godfrey. He is the CEO of Bergen Bio. Richard, thank you so much for your time this morning. Very good. Thank you, Neil. Great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much.